Like what would be the sign of success? It's like one day, like in our blocks piece is hanging at the MoMA or the Guggenheim, not as generative art or not as crypto art, but just art. This is Opinionated, a roundtable debate that fascinates with each new thought-provoking guest, the place to convey strong ideas and at times the casual controversy. Join Features Editor Ben Schiller and reporters Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson as they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hey, everyone. This is Opinionated. Welcome to the show. This is Danny Nelson. I'm here with Ben Schiller. Hey, hey. And our co-host, Anna Badakova. She is a little under the weather. She's out this week. But we have as our guest, Eric Calderon, the CEO of Artblocks, one of the most important, I would say, and valuable NFT platforms out there today in terms of the value transacted on it. Right now, Artblocks has seen, by some metrics, over a billion dollars it transacted on the platform, and it's also just raised some capital from investors. Eric Calderon, CEO of Artblocks, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Yeah. So we'd love to just get started. How did you find yourself in a position where I think it's correct to say Artblocks just raised over $6 million from investors? Yeah. You know, in November, I started this hobby this hobby level platform called Artblocks that just kind of uh, was a, a culmination of just about everything that I've ever done as a hobby. I'm a huge blockchain nerd. I'm big into generative art. I'm big into coding, art just in general. And it was this little thing right after I launched it, people started reaching out and saying, hey, you're going you're gonna to want to raise money. And I'm like, come on, this is, this is my hobby. <laughs> There's no need for that. We're having fun. This is great. Uh, we did eventually accept some money for a, a small round that we closed in, I want to say, March or April. And, you know, I adamantly was like, okay, well, that's it. Like, we, we do not need to raise any more money. We're good. And sure enough, the platform kept growing and the, the need to hire more talent kept becoming very clear. In um, June, uh, I was approached by a couple of firms about raising this round. And yeah, we raised six million bucks from, I think, some of the most passionate and VCs in this space, people that seem to really care about not just NFTs, crypto, but uh, amazingly um, founders. And it's, it's, been, it's been a great ride. And who's participating in the round? So the lead for this round is True Ventures. Um, and uh, immediately behind them was a company called Galaxy Interactive. And then uh, Collab Currency, uh, uh, a, a, a little bit behind that. And uh, Collab was actually the lead on our first round. And they came around and uh, really stepped it up in the second round as well to be a, a big chunk of that. After that, we have three kind of larger, we're very, very lucky to have a bunch of amazing angel investors and kind of in between the angels and the um, main leads, we have uh, Libertas, Capital, Flamingo Dow, and Delao. Uh, and all of them were, were participating in the first round and also participated in the second round. That's, that's awesome to hear. And, you know, I have to ask, what does it like mean for Flamingo Dow, which a lot of people in the NFT world might be familiar with for going their practice of going out and nabbing rare looking NFTs, I guess. This is a decentralized autonomous organization. 
you guys just raised an equity round, not a tokenized equity round. This is proper venture equity play. And there's a DAO participating. Was the process of raising money from a DAO a little different than from Galaxy Interactive, which is the arm of Galaxy Digital, one of the biggest um, investors and players in the space? You know, I get to see what happens inside Flamingo DAO. You know, so it was actually really interesting because it went up for a vote and it was voted on uh, internally and then it was voted on on chain. I received funds in ETH directly from multisig you know, from the DAO treasury, you know, I, I came into 2021 thinking DAOs were awful just from kind of being in the, in the crypto space and just feeling very ICOE in 2017 and just kind of really seeing how people can turn something that could be a governance into a, just a purely speculative mechanism with zero regard to governance. Uh, Flamingo DAO reached out, turns out they had minted a bunch of squiggles on the Artblocks platform. And I was like, who, what, what's going on here? And it turned out they were human. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it, you know, by being in the crypto space for this long, it's just, you feel like you're just talking to a bunch of robots and a bunch of people that have just no understanding of like business and law. And uh, I remember pre reached out and was like, Hey, we think what you're doing is pretty cool. Got to know each other. Uh, Aaron got involved a little bit as well. And, and before I knew it, I was not only part of the DAO, but the DAO and the uh, companion Lao were both interested in investing in our blocks directly. It was just pretty great. So I'm interested uh, about generative art because uh, that's one thing you're you're sort of well known for on the platform. Can you just talk about what that is exactly? Because I think a lot of people don't really understand. And also, how much of a kind of innovation is this? I mean, it seems to be one of the aspects of the the NFT space that is really new in terms of the type of art that's been created. To answer the second part of your question, there's just one tiny little innovation that's happened between decades of this craft of generative art and today. And, and it's the ability to prove variability in a generative script using blockchain technology. Also, NFTs in general allow you to prove ownership of a digital asset. So that's a huge innovation, but not specific to generative art or generative scripting. Uh, generative art is a practice, a, a, a type of art that started in the 60s. I mean, I've seen some kind of examples of, of work like kind of be considered generative in the 50s, but it's the idea that you know, to kind of give an analogy, if, if a painter uh, spends 40 hours painting a, an oil painting, and then you have this masterpiece, and that's, that's it, that's the painting. Well, there's only one, and there will only be one. And the, the only way to get another one is to spend 40 hours making a second one. Uh, with generative art, uh, or algorithmic art, you might spend 40 hours building an algorithm that is shaped and tweaked and finessed into producing seemingly unlimited outputs using that code. And when I say 40 hours, it's because you can whip something together in five hours. That looks pretty cool. In fact, there's a distinction between what we call algorithmic art and generative art, where algorithmic art is just any output that's created by code. You can, instead of clicking the paintbrush button on Photoshop and dragging it across the screen, you use paintbrush and then you give it the coordinates and it can give it that result. That's algorithmic. You're, you're creating an output with an algorithm. What changes with generative is that you're programming it to have a bunch of different variables in it so that each one of those outputs can be at, you know, with the, with the click of a button can be refreshed and turned into something completely different. And what makes a specific generative project brilliant or really the ones that stand out are when you press the space bar and the entire output changes and it's compellingly different and still beautiful and you still know that it belongs to that same algorithm. So it's not like, you know, something, a completely different output every time. That's something that, again, it's been around since the 60s. It's been around since the 70s. In my career in the generative art space, you know, I've been watching and following some of the most incredible generative artists on Instagram 
posting dailies every day. They post some new brilliant output. And I just felt like there was this lack of concreteness there. It's like they would post this thing and it would be beautiful. And the next day they'd post something different. And with what blockchain does is it allows you to approve ownership of a digital asset. And what Artblocks does and what gen, you know, generative art on chain does is it allows you to prove that a specific output is what it is in the world of the generative space. It allows you to create a cap for a seemingly unlimited edition. If, if an artist created a generative algorithm and they press spacebar a million times, they could have a million outputs. With Artblocks, you know, the, the artist is setting a cap of a thousand and then saying, hey, this is it. This is my algorithm. Whatever it produces, it produces. And that's my art. And then they walk away from that piece as like a complete finished product. Talking about the people that are actually creating this, I was poking around the gallery. Jeff Davis, he's the chief creative, right, for Art Blocks. He's also, you know, if you're into that kind of art, you might know who Jeff Davis is. He's been featured in legitimate art museums around the country for years now. How do you find yourself working with someone such as Jeff Davis? And what is the, I guess, the creative process like for someone such as that in putting together these algorithms and these pieces of generative art? Well, Jeff Davis is a special case because Jeff Davis is one of the few artists that before I launched Artblocks was willing to give me the time of day and actually create something for Artblocks. So Artblocks on day one launched with my project, my brother's project, who, you know, I had been working with him for a few years on, on that uh, as a potential output for a generative project. And then Jeff Davis. He has been creating art for decades. He's been working algorithmically for about a decade. He is a very established artist and someone whose very minimalistic style really appealed to me. On top of all the facts that maybe he was one of the only ones that was willing to talk to me, like that's also a, a style of art that I really appreciate. Just real simple, clean stuff. Yeah, Jeff Davis was around very early. And then as the platform launched and it grew, you know, I realized, A, he's a brilliant human being and, and B, he seemed to kind of, you know, become interested, not just in like, you know, his art contribution to the platform, which is just typically what the platform is there to do, but also the platform as a whole and what it was exploring and what it was doing. So, I mean, to, to outsiders and to Philistines like myself, you know, we might look at a platform like yours and, and see a bunch of kind of computer squiggles. I mean, how do you think about what is good and what is not good. I know this is sort of a timeless question about what is what is art, and it's a bit sort of silly, but this is your business and, and you must have some kind of filtering system for deciding on which of these submissions is worth putting on the site and which is deemed surplus to requirements. So uh, I mean, how do you begin to think about computer squiggles? I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. Originally, I mean, I had in my back pocket a few extra projects just in case nobody ever wanted to launch on Artbox after we launched. When Artbox was created, it was never going to be gating or preventing anyone from putting a script on the platform. It was there to allow anyone that understands the idea of algorithmic art to put a piece of art out there in a way that just had never really existed before. And even in the first couple of days, it was pretty busy. And yeah, obviously we sold out a bunch of stuff, but it still was not apparent the amount of demand that there would be on the artist side to like deploy stuff on the platform. So early on when we started getting artists kind of wanting to jump in. Early on, we had very little bandwidth. Uh, it was just Jeff and myself and, and a bunch of really amazing community members that were helping any way that they could, you know, in the first like month or two. And so we realized that we were getting art that we may or may not want on the platform as kind of featured as on the platform. Like there was definitely a distinguished uh, line between some of the pieces that were coming in and some of them that weren't. And, but we weren't ready to draw the line and say, sorry, you can't 
deployed on the platform. So we created what's called a curation board. We have the Artblocks Curation Board, which is about 25 individuals from all over the world in all industries, both from like the traditional art world, the generative art world, specifically collectors, NFT, like NFT collectors and enthusiasts. We have some advisors and some investors on that board as well. And those people are there not to necessarily gauge what is the best art because that's subjective and that's not really fair. Like you said, like that's not, I mean, that's an age old question that will never be, but what are the projects that are coming through the pipeline that best exemplify and take advantage of like this tool that is art blocks for uh, demonstrating the power of generative art. And that is also very subjective, but as a result, we have a rating system. And so as the projects apply, they either get accepted into the, what we call the curated section of the platform. And they could be the most brilliant projects ever because some of my favorite projects don't get curated, but if they don't meet that expectation, if they don't kind of raise the bar, which is kind of what we're trying to do every, every time we have a curated drop, then they are released under what's called the factory. And the factory is basically just originally was this home for anybody. I mean, if you could code a square on your screen to rotate, you, you had a place on our blocks. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, you know, with the growth of the platform, the need to make sure that all of the stuff on the platform started to become elevated, not just this curate. Like there was just too much. We, at any given moment, we have a, a waiting list of 200 artists waiting to deploy. And while we never really wanted to gatekeep people's ability to put generative art on chain, there's other platforms that are coming out that are also avenues. So it's not like we're saying, hey, if you don't launch an art box, you will never deploy an art block script. And as a result, we more recently, maybe in the last two months, uh, started actually curating even for the factory a little bit just to kind of make sure that the the, the projects that are on our blocks are, are high effort and and you can tell you know that they and just that they that they belong on the platform. Do you think that we're heading toward a world where let's just say the Guggenheim will want to be showing an NFT in the uh, in the gallery? Ooh, man, I mean that's that's such an interesting question. I feel like at the beginning of this whole process, Jeff and I would look at each other and be like, man, one day, like what would be the sign of success? It's like one day this, like an art blocks piece is hanging at the MoMA or the Guggenheim, uh, not as generative art or not as crypto art, but just art. In an interview with uh, Casey Reese, which is one of the founders of Processing, which is the reason this can even all exist. Processing is a language that we have adapted to use on art blocks uh, in JavaScript form. You know, he was asked, something along those lines. And he said, man, I can't remember exactly, but it was kind of like, yeah, I, I no longer like, you know, I'm just doing my own thing. And we're, we don't need to appeal to that market. We don't need to, I mean, we would be honored and flattered to have our stuff, but we feel that we're, we're creating something different and maybe doesn't fit the mold and maybe doesn't fit that pedigree of collectorship and booing and awing of galleries. I don't know, like maybe we will, we are creating something that will kind of create its own space. And so, yeah, I, I, I think you'll see NFTs at the Guggenheim. I, see, I think you'll see NFTs at, at the MoMA if they're not there already. And I, and I sure hope that some of them are Artblocks NFTs, but we've kind of gotten to a point where we just want recognition that this is an art form, like a, a legitimate art form, because it, it is. It's something that people have been pouring their, their lives into for years, and it's just never really been a widely recognized form of art. And I think we're kind of achieving that on our own. It's very rewarding at this point. If things continue the way they're going and, you know, the Guggenheim and the MoMA believe that what we're doing is absurd or, you know, not in line with what they consider art, then I guess I'm not so disappointed. Like, I think we're doing something special here. And I think it's, it's special to the people that are involved. 
I think it's interesting how in the blockchain space, which is so much about getting rid of gatekeepers and intermediaries, there is a tendency for people to kind of crave recognition and acceptance from those very gatekeepers. And I think that's true of Bitcoin. It started with this rhetoric about getting rid of banks and then suddenly you're so happy to get acceptance on Wall Street. And it seems to be a similar thing in, in this art space where this is about like enabling and democratizing the art world and allowing more people to you know, get their stuff shown and get it kind of bought and appreciated. And yet everyone wants to be sold at Christie's and be at the Guggenheim. So, I mean, how do you think about that question? Because on the one hand, you want that acceptance, you want that recognition. On the other hand, that's the old world and this is the new world. I mean, there's no doubt that NFTs are disruptive and there's no doubt that generative NFTs are disruptive in an even different way. I've followed art for a long time. I value the relationship that an artist has with the gallery. I, I was never accepted into a gallery. And I also was always intimidated of walking into a gallery my whole life. So, you know, like my, I have zero relationships with galleries until recently. And my relationships with galleries now are interesting. They're all over the place. Like there's some galleries that I'm having an incredible time getting to know and learn about and have been incredibly encouraging, supportive of what's going on. And there's some galleries that feel very threatened and uncomfortable with the idea that this technology is coming. We would love to be inclusive of what brought us here, which is the traditional art world. The idea that art can be at this level really didn't exist if it wasn't for the auction houses or for the paces or for you know, all these galleries that exist in the world. We want to include them as much as possible. And we will. But they also are going to have to kind of you know, consider a little bit that there is this disruptive nature and of what's going on. And, you know, artists are coming directly to the platform and saying, hey, I want to deploy. And it's really hard for us to be like, okay, we'll sign this document that says that you're not represented by another gallery because it's just, mm -hmm. that's just not the nature of, of, of what's happening here. We are removing the middleman to a degree. What artists should never lose sight of though is the emotional support that a gallery can offer and like the career support and the patronship that like a gallery can offer. And that's something that when, when we talk about removing the middleman, like you do give something up, right? Like when fees go down because you are using an online bank, you also don't have the person to call when you have an emergency. And there is always a trade-off. There will always be a trade-off. Nothing in this world is just like that clean and easy. And we do encourage artists to, to maintain that relationship with their galleries. And how does, you know, the generative squiggle business uh, line up against the import tile business, which uh, I believe is, <laughs> is your past hustle or uh, current hustle, even the La Nova the tile import business in Houston. Did you learn anything in the tile business, the, uh, the, the physical import business that has somehow instructed how you've gone about things at Artblocks? Every single thing I've done in the last 18 years, which is when I started Lenovo Tile, has gone into what you're seeing in our blocks today. I, I think that a lot of times in this space, we have brilliant engineers come up with brilliant ideas. I have been taking the approach of the customer is always right and dealing with really amazing, great times and dealing with really rough times when crazy stuff happens in importing business for 18 years and taking care of clients and listening to clients and understanding what people want. And I think that you can't learn that overnight. If you have a brilliant idea in the blockchain space in such a fast moving space, but you don't have kind of that background as an entrepreneur, as a, as a businessman, as an you know, uh, understanding what it, what it takes to get a client and keep a client. Like in the NFT space, we're just so used to like 
getting new clients and getting new clients and getting new clients, but like it, you also have to retain them and keep them and, and have a voice. So the tile business has taught me infinitely uh, how to be a, a good business person. I attribute a lot of my personal characteristics to my, to my dad, who's just, you know, a very um, amazing business person, someone that just understands how to speak to people and how to interact and how to get to the bottom of what people want and how to make people happy. Uh, and I've then spent 18 years practicing that in a very brick and mortar uh, space that has provided me just an incredible wealth of clients uh, experience. Like my, my, my clients in the, in the design world are formative and beautiful people. And uh, I attribute a lot of the success that Artbox is having today to the 10,000 hours or whatever it's called, you know, that, that, that I spent grueling away in understanding and just learning how to be a business person learning how to be myself and learning how to like listen and, and take care of people. So I was reading uh, in your fortune profile here that you used to also have a snow cone, uh, <laughs> a stand, and that, that led to your Twitter profile, which is Snowflow. T- talk about the, the stand there and how, how that was formative as well. I've been an entrepreneur since, gosh, since I was 10, probably. Like I've always just wanted to start businesses. And when I got to college, I really, I guess I really let loose. And um, I had an Afro, it was probably about like six inches above my head. And uh, cool. And I thought it'd be really fun to start a snow cone stand. So I was at the University of Texas. This is probably around 2001. You know, I went to the city and I paid $400 for a 10 foot by 10 foot spot on the sidewalk right across from the University of Texas, uh, right in front of the co-op. Bought a truck, bought a snow cone machine. And then with best friends at the time, we would wake up every morning and mix some snow cone syrups and, and sell some snow cones. It was a terribly losing venture. <laughs> in the end, Lenovo Tile, the current company, bought my truck from me because I didn't need it anymore. And uh, it was fun, though. It was it was really fun. Again, you learn a lot from these things. And this is this is probably business number three in my life. You know, the first serious one, the first one I got loans out for. But yeah, so we called it Snowfro Refreshments, and people would come buy snow cones from the dude with the afro, uh, and uh, that became kind of my my nickname amongst some friends and therefore kind of what I used when I joined Discord or joined the kind of crypto community as Snowfro. The crypto community, that's a, a fun one. You know, I was speaking to you a couple of weeks ago, uh, wondering if you'd be at Masari Mainnet. And I th- your response was, you don't think so because you don't even know what that is. Uh, you're, you're quickly approaching a point where you'll, you'll have to know all these uh, industry gatherings, my man. I mean, but, you know, getting in on Discord, getting uh, in on Twitter, What's it been like interfacing with the crypto community? What has that meant for you as the founder of a pretty uh, important and, and well-known platform right now? I still don't know what Masari Mena is. I guess I, I mean, I guess I still need to learn. There's so much stuff happening. It's crazy. I was in New York a week before, right? I, got, I was invited by Wave Financial to speak on a panel for SALT, for the SALT conference. You know, super excited to, to get to work with those guys. But it's amazing how many things happen and how many things totally miss when you're living under the rock of being a founder of a platform that just kind of never takes a break. It's 24-7, part of crypto. The public presence and the social media presence is, is really interesting. So uh, number one, I always feel like I'm really lacking on Twitter, but a lot of it is because you know I'm just so afraid of the, there's so much hype and there's so much conversation of hype. And I'm literally just afraid of saying something that will trigger people into buying something or selling something. It's just you know, it's gotten to a point where people are very well aware of like the influence that they carry in this space. And 
in, and I think some people wield it very, very, very well. And some people wield it, I think, in a, in a scary way. That's just the space that we're in. That's kind of the anonymous kind of nature of what we're, of what we're doing. In Discord, man, you know, I, I did tweet, I think a, a month ago, I don't remember if I did it under Artbox or under myself as saying like, you know, everybody should just take a step back and realize the disruptive nature and kind of like the incredible contribution that Discord has made not just to crypto, but to gaming, to everything. And so Artblocks Discord that was founded in 2018 with seven of us in there until 2020, that has 34,000 people in it. I, I really think that research will, if it's not already be done about the concept of the new global headquarters being on Discord and the 24-7 customer service line that is the user feedback channel where people can literally just come in and just lay it on you. And it's terrifying. I wake up every morning to like 30 to 50 direct messages, but you know what? I reply to every single one of them, unless they're shilling me something, unless they're asking me something completely unreasonable or something that I just can't answer. But if it's, if it's legitimate, I reply to every one of them. And I think that a lot of people probably feel like they're above that. And I may eventually have to just step off of discord. Like, I mean, my, my days are now nine back-to-back one hour calls every single day with all sorts of brilliant people. But that's part of it, like this whole social media thing. Like this wouldn't exist. Artblocks would not exist if it was not for Discord. Artblocks would probably not be as successful as it is now. Like it would have taken longer to get to where we are if it wasn't for the Discord bots. These are the things that, for example, OpenSea provides a webhook so that every time someone buys a piece or sells a piece, there's like an announcement made in the channel. And there's channels where there's hundreds of people congregating, just watching it and then cheering it on. We have a, a awesome member of our community that yells goal every time like a big you know sale happens and and i would say that that is some of the most important contributions in what we're seeing in like the in the massive success of not just our products but like all the nft space anything in the visual arts anything in the visual world is benefiting from this new corporate headquarters called discord and slack uh, and I don't think anybody has the rules, knows exactly how to do it. You know, we have the Instagram people that they just know how to run your Instagram account. Like, and if there are, they're just getting started, like the professional Discord people that would just run your professional Discord account. Like, this is new. This is unprecedented. Uh, and we're all feeling it out and we're all doing the best that we can to just, you know, make sure that we satisfy our 35,000 customer service requests. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I think that is a good place to wrap. Uh, I think we've all learned a good bit about Artblocks. Everyone, you got to check out artblocks.io. See what all these generative art pieces are all about. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the pod on International Podcast Day, no less. Hey. You know, And we're, we'll definitely be keeping our eye on the project to see what you guys do with all that money. <laughs> we'll hire more people. <laughs> hire more people. They, exactly. Gross, gross build mode. Team. Yeah. Build mode. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much again. So uh, that was uh, Eric Calderon, everyone, uh, the CEO of Artblocks. Ben, I think that he has, Snowfrau has stumbled into a level of fame that don't think he expected when he first made a digital squiggle. I really enjoyed that because he's such a humble, nice guy who really likes his artwork, who's really been around and, and really values his, uh, his clients and his, his artists. So I, I think he's an example of someone who's really not along on the bandwagon. He's, he's a real artist friend and deserves his success, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I'm walking away from that conversation, actually understanding a good bit more about what Artblocks is about. It's not just a place for abstract geometric design art pieces. 
in a little conversation we had with Eric separate from the podcast, we learned how dependent the platform is on only hosting pieces of art that are computer generated and are generative. Like it literally cannot just host JPEG. That is not something that it is technologically capable of doing, which in my mind really helps ArtBlocks stand out from a very crowded field of you know NFT platforms and ideas. This 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 concept that to be a piece of art on ArtBlocks, it needs to be the the art isn't the creation of the piece; it's the creation of the code that creates the piece. Right. And what that will look like could vary from one refresh to the next. So where do you think uh, the NFT space is going to go going forward? I mean, we had an interesting discussion about uh, the sort of difference between success on the online world and success in, say, the Guggenheim. I mean, what happens when the Guggenheim is open for business uh, and everyone's going there again? Do you think that will impact the NFT market or is this an innovation that's really here to stay, do you think? Well, so, you know, it's funny talking about the Guggenheim early in, I think, NFT craze part one. So at the beginning of 2021, when NFTs were really uh, getting in the news, Guggenheim actually, Guggenheim Museum, we should say, not the investment firm. Um, although I, I believe that their, their namesake is the same if you go back far enough. But anyway, the Guggenheim Art Museum of New York City actually put out a call for interns who would look into how the Guggenheim might host an NFT. Like, what does it actually mean for a physical art museum to show off a digital piece of art? Uh, I don't know where those conversations have led but they are certainly thinking about it. it. It seems to me from what Eric was saying, you know, this art community isn't so concerned necessarily with getting into the Guggenheim, although of course that would be awesome for them. It's just it's a different landscape nowadays, which is really cool to hear him saying that these creators aren't so concerned with bowing down to the old gatekeepers and, and instead are focused on creating something new. Because there is this kind of criticism of the NFT bubble that it's a COVID thing. It's like four people on their phones at home not being able to go out. And so they're just sort of buying JPEGs. Well, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, think, I think we're a long way beyond that, aren't we, at this point? I, I would say so. But I do think that part of the reason why we're seeing such high figures for these pieces of art are because there are a lot of crypto rich who just they're sitting on a a shitload of ETH, right? And they're trying to diversify. So they're piling in. Now, I wouldn't say that's all activity, but I think it's safe to say that we would not be at the point we are if not for the people who are bored on their phones um, yeah. and, and just have a lot of crazy internet money that they want to put into crazy internet art. But it's nice talking with someone like Eric because he, he is a true artist and he understands the difference between good stuff and not good stuff exactly so i feel more comfortable with him in charge here and and so. seeing like we talked right at the beginning there about the the raise you know six million is not some dapper labs 800 bajillion dollar round but they they raised this money a little bit before Artbox mooned i guess uh i'm, I'm sure that flamingo dao and galaxy are very happy with the direction this thing is going in uh I, I believe that Artblocks, the platform, takes a 10% cut of all primary sales. That might be true for a secondary market too. Don't quote me on that, but it is also true that the, the platform has seen uh, almost a billion dollars in value transacted. So that's millions of dollars in, in revenue generated almost certainly for this, this platform, which is just a crazy figure for something that just popped up 
about a year ago or so, maybe a little earlier than that. November, he said, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, this is certainly something to keep an eye on, seeing what they're going to do with this money. It's a serious business. Art is a serious business, and this is a very serious platform for art. Our four artists, you know, the chief creative officer is Jeff Davis. You have to know the art world to know who that is. But if you do, then you might think, wow, okay, they're they're not messing around here. That's true. Uh, it was a great guest, and thanks for organizing it, though. Awesome. Yep. This has been Danny Nelson with Ben Schiller. Do subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on Coindesk.com. See you guys next week on Opinionated. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and guest Eric Cauldron. Today's show is produced, announced, and edited by Michelle Mousseau with additional production support from Eleanor Paul. Our theme music is by Ellison. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.